to the Hertie School. Hertie School. The Hertie School. Well, we live in Berlin. Great to be back in Berlin. As a school of governance, we see our mission in fostering these important discussions. Emmanuel Macron. Professor Habermas. Thank you, Ambassador Ischinger. Minister Gabriel. This is Germany's moment to shine. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Hertie School of Governance in Berlin. Tonight, we're delighted to host Arjuna Padovai for a lecture on The Ghost of Schumpeter, Failure, Risk and Innovation in the Digital Age. The leading question of the event is as follows. Does the nature of innovation in the sphere of digital technology today represent success or failure for contemporary capitalism? To shed light on this question, Arjun will revisit the political economist Joseph Schumpeter and his influential idea about, you may, of course, most of us have come across it already, the idea of creative destruction. Examining the role of designers, investors, and consumers in the area of digital products and services, Arjun will present how technological innovation has turned disruption into the primary entrepreneurial ideology. Arjun, and the word is yours. Welcome. Historically, uh, in my uh, working life, indeed I've been interested in, in culture and globalization and also in perspectives on uh, these matters, uh, both from the US, where I've been for a very long time, but also from India, where I originally come from and which I work on and which I teach about. So those have been the angles. And it's only in the last um, seven or eight years, maximum 10, that I've really become exposed to some serious thinking about the economy and also about media and about digitalization and so on, partly because I teach, have been teaching at NYU when I moved to NYU to a department called Media, Culture, and Communication which has faculty from many disciplines, including other anthropologists like me, there are sociologists, but there are also people who work on the study of uh, software, of digital humanities and visual things, uh, machines of different kinds, uh, infrastructure, all that. Not as uh, scientists or engineers, but uh, who are fully engaged with contemporary machinic life and technology. So I have a, I'm a late arrival in this matter, though I have been using a computer and I do use email and so on, but uh, I'm not uh, uh, hugely uh, a user of many, many other things, but I've learned to be very interested in them. And this talk uh, is partly a product of that. It's partly a product of something else, which is a interest of about seven or eight years standing in finance, contemporary finance, and in particular, the instruments called derivatives, which have been huge sources of wealth production and were quite directly involved in the financial collapse of 07, 08. Uh, so there I was able to draw on a, a long history of interest in economics and culture and my in great interest in Marx Weber, for example, was very helpful to me when I came to study these financial instruments. But uh, on the other side of my brain, I was aware that there is a big uh, gap and a kind of tension between, let's call it Wall Street, financial capital, financial markets, derivatives, hedge funds, bankers, investors, and 
Silicon Valley. This is in the U.S. perspective, of course. I'm not taking a European perspective now, but in the U.S., uh, Wall Street and Silicon Valley are not only a continent apart, they seem to have very different milieus and ideas about wealth, about innovation, and the like. So I'm coming now to try to understand the Silicon Valley side of the, our new economy, and in this, uh, Schumpeter uh, becomes very uh, relevant. So I'm going to read now, uh, and occasionally depart from the text, and we'll try and keep it uh, to a reasonable amount of time. So I want to begin by something discussing failure. And it's something I'm trying to write something about, a topic I'm trying to write about. So let me discuss it briefly before I go on to a few other things. So failure is part of the human condition. We fail more often than we succeed in life and in our careers as parents, citizens, planners, as scientists, as policymakers, and as scholars. Yet, there have been few efforts to learn from failure as a general feature of social life, in spite of a substantial literature about disappointments, accidents, disasters, and even about the secrets of success in many endeavors. There are two major exceptions to this failure to think creatively about failure. The first is in modern science, where failures in experiments, calculations, replicability, are treated as vital and indispensable features of the progress of science, with the most explicit formulation about failure being that of the famous Karl Popper and his ideas about conjecture and falsifiability as the key hallmarks of fruitful hypotheses in the exact sciences. So today I'm talking about Schumpeter, but another Austrian is on my mind here, and that's Popper, and I will, we can talk about that a bit later if you wish. The other is the field of business studies. This is where failure has not been ignored. Bridging technology, entrepreneurship, and investment, in which failure is increasingly acknowledged as something to encourage, cultivate, expect, and examine especially where technical and commercial innovations are concerned. This open attitude to failure is more apparent in the US, whereas European countries have a more ambivalent attitude toward failure. Of course, you can correct me because I'm a recent arrival here. Much of the business literature, particularly from the US, is littered with cliches about learning from failure with minimal attention paid to how we can distinguish fruitful failures from fruitless ones in any given social setting. Hence, the links between failure and innovation remain as obscure as they were to such pioneers of social science as Frank Knight, Joseph Schumpeter, and Marx Weber, who were interested in risk, profit, and innovation. The era of globalization, especially because of the speed of change, the growth of winner-take-all markets, the multiplication of environmental hazards, the uneven distribution of capital, talent, and integrity, and the inequality of access to education, markets, and jobs has multiplied the number of failed states, on which there's a whole literature, failed markets, another huge literature, failed wars, failed welfare projects, failed technologies, failed social programs, and failed corporations, among other things. But there is no clear effort to think through this epidemic of failure and related to the expectations, aspirations, and standards that much of the world has begun to share about the successful life, the successful society, 
and the successful nation. We are quick to identify failure, but unclear about what counts as a failure and also about which failures actually count. Failure is something we experience and declare often. We judge states, markets, marriages, careers, machines, and even gods to have failed. No society or culture lacks a language for failure. Yet, failure is a loose concept, covering everything from small mistakes in ordinary life to major catastrophes in society, nature, and history. The ubiquity and universality of declarations of failure tends to, lends to them the sense that failure is akin to a self-evident or natural fact. Eh, things fail. Yet, failure is a bigger mystery than at first it appears to be. The most important thing about failure is that it is not a fact, but a judgment. And being a human judgment, we are obliged to ask how the judgment is made. Who is authorized to make it? Who is forced to accept the judgment? And what the relationship is between the imperfections of human life and the decision to declare some of them as constituting failures. It further follows that failure is not seen in the same way at all times and in all places. Historical understandings of failure are prone to change, sometimes dramatically. And failure is always seen through the prism of language, context, and tradition, all of which imply that failure is a cultural fact and that its form and extent are shaped by cultural assumptions and measurements. So, in my other larger work, I feel we must ask, and I do ask, how failure varies culturally. The variability of ideas about failure is further complicated in our world by the traffic in ideologies, technologies, and moralities that constitute globalization. Ideas about failure circulate, and as they do so, they encounter other ideas about failure, producing hybrid ideologies and measures of failure, some of which acquire temporary dominance in many societies, while others retain an idiosyncratic cultural stamp. So somebody who arrives in Mumbai would be the first to say, well, this is clearly a failed city. But you know, people live in Bombay, and they've been living there a long time. Uh, like India, it's a place that refuses to die, though it should constantly be dying every day. But it doesn't. In fact, it's very alive. So, who judges uh, what the failure is? The fact that it's not like Amsterdam, or it's not like Tokyo, yes, but you know, it's also not like some other places, so these judgments do vary. That's one small example. Thus, failure is a volatile and variable concept. Some of this variability is a matter of history and culture, while other parts of it are owed to the difference between fields, disciplines, and forms of knowledge. And you can see, without going into a huge amount of detail, that if you're a philosopher, you know, failure is one kind of thing. It may have to do with language and concepts and so on. If uh, you're a political economist, it may have to do with the poor delivery uh, of justice, resources, wealth. If you are a uh, uh, historian uh, concerned with capitalism, you might uh, want to look at failure yet differently. Uh, in fact, you tend to do so. Uh, for scholars concerned with the state, science, and modernization, failure can be presented in the guise of development, progress, and even freedom. And even the harshest of failures in central planning can be seen as part of the march of success in the form of social development. For scholars of urban life, as I've said already, and of democratic politics, failure can be dressed up as success, while the success of certain forms of urban policy or of political movement can contain within themselves bigger costs and deeper failures. So 
discipline perspective also matters, not just the fact that somebody's making the judgment who's in a particular historical and cultural place. So coming slowly towards my empirical subject, Silicon Valley digital uh, technology, let me say that the virtues of failure are now fervently embraced by high technology companies and business experts, and many of you know this, especially in the US. This fervor has its roots in the mid-century discussion of innovation, risk, and even crisis by such thinkers as Joseph Schumpeter, to whom I'll return in a moment. There's a, also a direct line from this embrace of innovation and volatility in capitalism to the peculiar centrality of potential failure in the recent design technologies of the post-industrial West. I'm gonna to come to that also in a minute. That is the, the devices we all have in our hands right now uh, and on our screens and so on are, have a special relationship to failure that I'll point out uh, in a moment. Ever since Karl Popper, conceptual failure in the form of refutation and falsification has been seen as a vital part of modern scientific progress. Where technology is concerned, usually failure is not admired in itself, but is seen as the ever-present cost of technological change. In the speculative world of Silicon Valley, as I will argue today, the Schumpeterian valorization of innovation combines with the contemporary designer's preoccupation with anticipating failure to, such, to produce such proverbs or maxims as fail early, fail often, which you can hear, you can read in the Harvard Business Review and hear all the time in Silicon Valley and so on. When capitalist modernity goes out into the world from its Western locations of origin, failure appears in many ideological guises. In recent times, the raw end of capitalist expansion produces high levels of immiseration, debt, environmental damage, and social dislocation in the poorer economies of the world. At the same time, the soft power of global development policies pursued by such organizations as the World Bank and IMF allows them, and this is the argument of my colleague Saskia Sassen very recently, to cleanse the data about these hidden failures and therefore to present these big development projects as largely uh, successful. So this tendency to mask failure is also visible in the proclivity of large modern organizations to deny failure, to create what my colleague Keller Easterling calls a closed loop in which effects and causes are so tightly interwoven as to deny failure. And when failure has to be confronted, it is handled as something external to the organization uh, or its technology and thus made easier to deny. So there's a ton of denial involved in these tight loops in complex organizations. So even when you have a case like Fukushima, or Challenger, uh, huge catastrophes of technology, there is a big push towards moving the problem outside because otherwise uh, this cause and effect ideology is, is destabilized and that is not something uh, uh, people want to do. So this structural tendency towards the denial of failure can also be seen in the saturation of today's designed technologies by futurity, testing, and failure. Indeed, as I will also say in a moment, interest in utility, convenience, and naturalness have given way to a boundless receptivity to failure. This is a philosopher, Cameron Tonkin-Wise, who's a colleague of mine, works on design. So he's an unusual case because he's a design thinker, but also a philosopher. 
he talks about this boundless receptivity to failure, thus rendering users into testers of a world of tools which exist only to fail and be modified without cease. So everybody in this room is basically a tester. And the idea is, yes, failure is good because then we will test, we will respond, and the next iteration will be better. It's an endless road. And it's, it's largely made up of failure. So the success is a brief moment before which the consumer feedback said, another thing is not good. So actually we can do better and so on. And designers, and there's a lot to be said about this, designers in the world of digital technology, the world we all occupy, actually are thinking almost the entire time about anticipating and preempting failure, but also getting feedback on failure by real live use, uh, user testing, and so on and so forth, which, about which I'll say more in a minute. We speak briefly about Schumpeter, and I don't want to take a lot of time on this because many of you might know about Schumpeter, because having said that there is a complicated relationship and a variable historical and cultural relationship and a variable uh, relationship uh, across organizations in the view of, in their view of what failure teaches and how you can read failure, and when you de designate something as a failure, having said that all that is a bit unstable. It's not straightforward, it's not self-evident, it's not consensual. Somebody has to really tell you, and the best example of this, by the way, to me is, is in fact in Silicon Valley or any place where venture capital is looking for places to put money, is the tap is turned on, if you're very lucky. So there may be this many people with ideas. I'm uh, Mark Andreessen, and I'll say, well, you know what? I like Helmholtz. Here's 25 million, the rest of you can go home, good luck, nice. Okay. So the tap turns on for one person and his device, his technology, his app. One year from now, I, Mark Andreessen, and my fellow investors, are not going so well, you know? This thing is not multiplying 100 million users already. It's not a unicorn, it's not so good. Tap turned off, it's a failure. Now, what was it about it? It could have been that the next $25 billion made it the biggest success ever known, but when the investor, the startup guy, the funder, the venture capitalist, turns the tap off, game over. That's a failure, but what kind of failure is that? It's a failure by declaration. This is the kind of thing Schumpeter was early onto, and very briefly before I go to Silicon Valley, I want to just give you a quick outline. Schumpeter is a remarkable uh, story. He is, uh, as many of you probably know, uh, an economist of Austrian origin, who was clearly a prodigy, uh, came to very early promotion and attention in Austria and in Europe, but then moved to the US, lived for a very large part of the 20th century. So it's an interesting history, younger than people like Max Weber, but already from an earlier period from our point of view. Lived uh, through both wars, and some of his best work was between World War I and World War II. And he is a very interesting man because he was in a serious intellectual dialogue with Marx, with Weber, and slightly less but also importantly with Werner Sombart, but also with many, many other people in the course of his life. But as far as the giants go, he was thinking with all these people. And therefore his work was always an effort to say what he thought was right and wrong in Marx, in Weber, in Zombart, not in general, but about the history of industrial capitalism. So he, was, he did a very close reading and his agreements and disagreements with Marx are very subtle ones. He's not a simple anti-Marxist, a simple pro-Marxist, certainly not pro-Marxist, but he's not a simple anti-Marxist. 
He also took very important things from Marx Weber, notably the idea that the economy itself is a kind of, and the market are cultural forms. They're not just separate subsystems, they are cultural forms themselves. So he gradually, in his study of the ups and downs of capital, of the way in which capital tended to grow and change, zeroed in on an idea which is already there in Marx and already there also in Zombart and in many other people who are slightly less well known today, uh, particularly uh, Austrian and German economists of the early part of the 20th century, that innovation is crucial to capitalism. That without innovation, the rest is not meaningful. Therefore, it is a perennially restless system. This is the second insight that should be, there's no stability. And to look for stability in capitalism is a problem. Now you can see there's a side result of this which is very, very deep, which is that you cannot, Schumpeter is not an equilibrium economist. He's just not interested in the equilibrium problem because equilibrium is not an interesting thing. It is not the central feature of capitalism. Why spend all this time trying to see when things stabilize? The point, the whole story is of unstable, volatile change driven by technological innovation. Now, he had a lot to say about this, including the fact that technological innovation requires people to put money into it. So he already understood you can't just have a better idea, a smarter bulb. Somebody has to say, I'm going to give you uh, 100,000 euros, 50 euros, 500 euros, depending on the time, so that you can try this out. So finance capital is very important in the history of technological change because minus that, the idea is just an idea. It has no market impact. But once it takes off and it succeeds, Schumpeter's pro uh, observation, which he developed much more fully than Marx, who had the idea that capital is always having a kind of destructive effect, Schumpeter refined that into this idea of creative destruction by saying, to move forward, a firm has to make a technical or technological innovation which destabilizes the rest of its competitive firms, achieves a kind of monopoly, and then because and to the extent that it's successful, it decimates earlier modes of production, technology, distribution, pricing, and so on. It just lays waste to them unless it's very minor, but anything important in the history of technological innovation lays waste to the prior arrangements of uh, technology, production, factory work, labor, wages, all of them. So he looked at this and he said, you know, this is capitalism. You like it, it's fine. I like it too. But recognize that it is leaving destruction always in its wake by its nature not as a secondary effect. So the center of his work was this, although he wrote a lot about business cycles, he, he was the one who really uh, made the idea of business cycles very important, taking the idea from Kontratiev and so on, but he really made it very central and said, look, what happens is when you get a firm that has a big innovation, the first natural move is to become a monopoly. You're the only one who has it, but then people look and slowly you cease to be a monopoly. So there'll be a kind of down moment and there'll be a kind of flattening, and then you'll suddenly get this explosion of value because somebody has a new idea, which is innovative and destructive of its competition and of the past. This is roughly the uh, Schumpeterian picture. He emphasized in this sense the creativity of the market, but also recognized that it can be very, very uh, uh, destructive. 
you can see why Schumpeter is taken up uh, in a big way by people like uh, Christensen at Harvard. This whole idea of disruption is a straightforwardly Schumpeterian idea. Now, there are people who think that actually it's not a very good use of Schumpeter because anything that creates disturbance for them becomes a disruptive thing. So you can you know, hire more black people in the workforce, that's a disruption. Schumpeter is much more precise. For him, disruption is about innovative technologies that unsettle previous regimes of production, distribution, pricing, and marketing. It's not anything you change in your workforce or this or that. Any little fiddling is not disruption. So the word has become very loose. But I would say in business school circles concerned with innovation, especially those associated with uh, Christensen and his many followers and pupils and his precursors, the disruption idea is Schumpeter 2.0. And they are the first to admit that, that without Schumpeter, they would have nowhere to build from. So this quick overview of Schumpeter is a, a way to get in then. Oh, by the way, one last thing. Schumpeter thought capitalism would destroy itself. This is his one big mistake. He thought roughly around the 80s or 90s, game over for capitalism. Why? Because too much of this destruction of its tail. It's like a dog eating up its tail. Slowly, there's nothing left. It's eating into its body, and in the end, there's nothing left. Gone. Well, we know that, especially after 89, uh, it's more or less the only game in town. So whether you're in China, whether you're in Turkey, whether you're in India, whether you're in Australia, whether you're in Latin America, it's only a question, what's your variety and the a la carte menu? But the C word is everywhere. There is no other real alternative. And that, of course, is tied to global integration on the one hand, because that is the game globally, and then the victory of, uh, of Western uh, uh, liberal capitalism, roughly around 89, meant that there is no other game in town. So he was dead wrong about that. But his analysis of how capitalism works is very, very prescient, as I hope to show you in my next discussion, which uh, I tentatively call Schumpeter's Second Life in Silicon Valley. So now I come to look a little more closely at this, this world of Silicon Valley economy as opposed to Wall Street economy, which I was very interested in before and still am very interested in. So I want to say that I draw here in this discussion, because I'm not a huge expert on this, on the work of a, a, a student who's doing his PhD now with me, whose name is Francis Jervis, J-E-R-V-I-S, who's currently working on startup culture in Silicon Valley. Who does it? Who has startups? Who's funding them? And it turns out there's not a lot on this in the social sciences. And of course, people in the industry are constantly studying this, but people outside uh, in fields like our own have not looked really closely. They've looked at banks, the big literature on finance, on exchanges, on commodity traders, on derivative traders, but say startups and venture capital, not much known. New Yorker has better stuff than social science journals, uh, really long form journalism on, um, on people like uh, Thiel and Anderson and so on. Very good pieces, superb pieces, but social science has not quite gotten this. So Francis has uh, led me to understand quite a bit. So, uh, I owe a lot to him, but I'm also thinking with Schumpeter and with the finance people in the back of my head, so the contrasts are very clear to me. So startups, which are a very crucial expression of Silicon Valley culture, offer offering consumer-focused products and services via a mobile app. And I'm, much of my talk from here on is going to be APP, the app word. 
represent the most uh, uh, culturally potent and most consequential, in some cases, most highly valued new enterprises emerging in Silicon Valley now. There are now around 105 mobile internet-focused startups with valuations in excess of 1 billion globally, of which more than half are located in North America, and revenues for the sector are predicted to rise to 850 billion by 2018, from around 300 billion in 2014. And recently, there's a source, a report called Annie App, A-N-N-I-E App, cited by everybody, the same damn report, which projects little more outward 2022 and says we're going to go into trillions. It's not 850 billion anymore. It's not one trillion anymore. It's a question of, and then a lot of attached numbers about how many users, how many hours, what kind of advertising, what are the source revenue. It's a very, very good report. But there's no doubt that there's a kind of hysteria building about the app economy. But even if you cut it back by 50%, the numbers are very impressive. The current numbers are very impressive. So forget the projections. The current numbers are very, very impressive. So this is clearly a significant moment in the history of what Marx called the commodity. From the apps themselves, which constitute a category of media which has to date been massively neglected by the social sciences, by media studies, etc., to the services and goods distributed through them, these systems afford radically new relationships between persons and things. The emergence of a distinct category of business model in which services as diverse as food deliveries, massage, dog walking, or cognitive behavioral therapy are delivered via a proprietary mobile app, which may be the vehicle for the entire interaction, as in the case of the various apps offering to connect users with therapists or coaches, or which may serve to trigger the dispatch of a real-world service provider, like somebody actually brings food to your home, introduces a significant new element, which I've already mentioned, that of user experience design into the process of launching a new enterprise and further a new experience of mediated affordance into the quotidian experience of consumption. In other words, rather than go to the store, this is happening uh, a lot. The app is driving our lives as consumers. This is a very deep revolution. So as well as reorganizing the ownership of resources through what is sometimes called the sharing economy, Platforms like Uber, which we all know now, which began as a platform for limousine drivers to earn extra fees while not working for their main employers uh, and relations of productive labor. So that's one case. And then relations of productive labor through myriad other platforms like TaskRabbit, Handy, or Alfred. The intensity of the experimental and iterative design process which lies behind these apps has led to a massive expansion of the role of user interface and user experience, called UI and UX. Researchers who themselves deploy what they term ethnographic methods on a routine basis. So we are all now official ethnographers for this, for this activity. Silicon Valley's broadly Schumpeterian model of entrepreneurship as a function within capitalist development and of the character of the entrepreneur is itself situated within a broader popular reading that is popular in Silicon Valley at the very top, where the biggest monies are being invented. Uh, and that is something in which two things happen. One, in this view of the seven or eight people who really drive this mental world of values and valuation, 
and investment in Silicon Valley. The entrepreneur's hero is, is a clear, clear theme, but there's something deeper. And it's a whole subfield which is supporting this idea of creative destruction, which the big venture capitalists, the mega ones, the ones looking for unicorns, the ones looking for apps that will make 100 billion. That's, that's what they want. They don't want something that make them a few hundred million dollars. They're not interested, simply not interested. So they peculiar mindset. In the mindset, so first of all, the entrepreneur is a hero. So they themselves see themselves as entrepreneurs, and they see themselves as identifying and funding entrepreneurs. Second thing is that the big insight they're after, anytime they're in a room where people are pitching them, and pitching is going on all the time, they're looking for social insights. They're not looking for insight about silicon. They're not looking for insight about fiber optic wire. That's fine. Somebody does that, that's good. They know that. What they are looking for is insights into you and me. So in a way, they're looking into insights which they don't already have. And being very smart, very arrogant, and very well informed, uh, the average social scientist like me can't come and say, you know what, this, this theory from Goffman, you know, it's quite interesting. The meeting will be over in two minutes. Because these guys know it all. So they want some dramatic new insight. And the new insight has some special quality. The first thing, to me, very uh, rich in learning, uh, learning experience for me, is that it's not technological. It's social. So I think, oh, that's good. I'm a social scientist. I think I might be able to understand how they're thinking. Well, not exactly, because they are into social insights with what they call network effects, so that the multiplication is my use drives your use, which drives another use, and soon we have 100 million users. That effect. They're not interested in a simple insight like, you know, people from China will not eat milk-based food because this is gone. So lifestyle research, consumer research, all that is zero interest to the unresearched of this world. Zero. I mean, stunning to me because there's a lot of that still going on in marketing companies, in PR companies, advertising companies. But this is zero interest. They want the insight about the network effect. So if you take not an app, but a platform, Facebook, that is totally about network effect. 100 producers, 1,000 will produce, 10,000 now produced several billion, right? That's the thing. So you want something which has that effect and which apparently provides some kind of service to on a mobile device. So these theorists also draw on something very interesting in relation to economics. And it's a little field which I didn't know existed. It's like a little planet that I was suddenly seeing, you know, to the left of Mars. Evolutionary economics. Evolutionary economics is an effort to put economics in evolutionary perspective and to see economic change, innovation, Schumpeter's issue, in a long evolutionary perspective as having to do with selection, competition, survival, and other such things having to do with the species as a whole. So these guys are big thinkers. They think about the human species and how this or that app is going to stand up and stand out like a small adaptation, which, however, changes the entire field in the way they imagine evolutionary theory has taught us to think. A little footnote for those of you into this exotic little space is I just recently saw a piece by Paul Krugman, whom I have a whole lot of respect for, on evolutionary economics and what he likes about it, what he doesn't like about it, what he thinks is common between evolutionary theory and economics theory, and what he thinks is wrong in so-called uh, 
evolutionary uh, economics. Very nice, very balanced, but it's clear he's interested. Paul Krugman is a very respectable man. There's nothing you know, out there about him, so I take it rather seriously. But notice that what it's doing by taking the, the idea of evolution, long-term change which disrupts very seriously, is no interest in equilibrium. It's all about massive changes that will reshape all of humanity. That is what these funders are sort of looking for. So though the apps themselves look very modest, you know, how do I get a car and this, that, the thinking behind them is kind of mammoth ideas, both about users, network effects, and human evolution. So let me go to my last uh, uh, discussion, having uh, tried to persuade you that Silicon Valley app-related venture funding is anchored both in a Schumpeterian view of creative destruction as the very heart of capital, as well as human evolution as being driven by this constant churning and competition between innovative ideas, many of which will not work, so they have no problem with failure. You can see why. They're looking for the unicorn, the one success that'll change the entire environment. So that, that, that's the mentality behind it. So now, uh, a last concluding set of remarks, uh, which is more or less to answer the question, so what do I think about this? Am I delighted? Do I think it's wonderful? Do I think we should all cheer and clap and say, great, you know, let's all go to Silicon Valley and develop an app? And my student's actually doing that, so he's entered by also having a little app that he's trying to pitch and promote, but it's also got an entry, a very smart guy. So he, when he talks to these people, it's clear that he knows a lot, uh, apart from his own app, which I don't think, you know, I don't think it's yet made him a, a, a millionaire or billionaire, but it got an entry into the space. So whatever else may be the case, this section is called Creative Destruction in the App Economy, and it's my last, the so what of what I've been trying to tell you so far. So whatever else may be the case, it should be evident uh, that the world of startups, apps, and user-based testing is different from the world of the Wall Street hedge fund manager, derivatives trader, or financial analyst, as well as from the methodical managerial world of large capitalist firms engaged in industrial manufacture, distribution, or marketing. Each of these worlds is interested in innovation, of course, in new technologies and some form of disruption of prior arrangements of labor, marketing, and market domination. But the Silicon Valley world is special in its ethos, in this general capitalist uh, galaxy. What is distinctive, I've suggested, in this ethos of the app, the test, and the network effect can also be identified if we go back to Schumpeter, but here we cannot apply Schumpeter mechanically. The best way to bring Schumpeter back to life, hence my title, The Ghost of Schumpeter, is by asking, as it were from scratch, how can we best apply the idea of creative destruction to today's world of networked, socially-oriented mobile apps? What exactly do they destroy? So we know destruction is always there, but what do these things destroy? In my view, the world of apps and the startup firms that generate them and the venture capitalists who bet on them is not primarily about the destruction of previous forms of technology, production, or labor, though they certainly have effects on all these areas. What they primarily innovate and thus creatively destroy is in the spaces of convenience, identity, and connectivity. 
This is the true arena of creative destruction in the sharing economies of our times. It is the direct disruption of prior forms of sociality. So let me just go through these three. Convenience. The revolution in convenience is the most insidious part of the new form of creative destruction. The most successful apps that are based on the demand for traditional technologies but promise new forms of convenient access to them, such as Uber, for example, mark a dramatically new moment in what we may call the history of convenience. Convenience is the new name for utility, and it trumps beauty, price, and social fairness in its emphasis on speed, personal convenience, and rapid payment. Convenience was always a feature of industrial marketing from the very beginnings of the consumer revolutions of the West in the late 17th and 18th centuries, but today's ideology of convenience is allied to speed, connectivity, and price in a manner that has little historical precedent. It is, of course, closely tied to the explosive growth of handheld mobile devices on which various services can be examined, evaluated, purchased, and consumed. It links bodily proximity, cyber identity, and speed in a manner that transforms transport, shopping, personal health, food consumption, dating, gift giving, news reading, and numerous other everyday activities into an endless pursuit of improved convenience. You think this is convenient? It's actually not right. It is also the basis for a new world of gaming, leisure, and entertainment, the best examples of which might be online gambling, which is a whole field in its own right. The root of this ideology is a series of digital affordances based on a linked set of technological revolutions in software, pattern seeking, and geographical positioning that turns the customer into a convenience for advertising of every kind while making convenience itself the criterion of value for all forms of consumption. So relationship between consumer and consumption, uh, convenience and consumption is revolutionized in both directions. Now, identity, I said three things, convenience, identity, connectivity. This is the social destruction of these new forms, identity. This, uh, of course, is a more fully explored topic than convenience in the study of the new digital world that surrounds us. Here, creative destruction through innovation is more evident, both in the world of apps and in the broader world of social media. For example, we are deeply concerned today about identity theft, but exactly what so sort of identity is at risk? It is not our personality, our values, or our deepest idiosyncrasies. It is the part of us which has already uh, become machine-friendly, searchable, storable, and saleable. That's the theft we're worried about. It is usually numerical, credit card numbers, zip codes, area codes, purchase and shopping histories, credit scores, etc. It is also recursive, insofar as our own efforts to use search engines such as Google makes us more easily available for identity theft, in other words. This sort of identity is what I call a search identity. Thus, identity theft is the theft of a machinic avatar for the purpose of deceiving other machine-based recognition systems. It is a special sort of identity, which we may also call an affordance identity, which is, of course, not unrelated to the revolutionary inconvenience, which I discovered, which I discussed earlier. In other words, if you want to get into the convenience game, please get into affordance identity or search identity. 
This sort of identity increasingly tends to blur, trump, and occlude other less machine-mediated identities, which were parts of pre-digital protocols of kinship, state, and employment, which were paper rather than machine-driven. Identity has become ID. Turn finally to connectivity. So I said three things. Connectivity is the third element of the sociality, which is the technological sine qua non of all the new user-based mobility-oriented, convenience-oriented applications that define consumer life in today's uh, society in the West and in many other places in varying degrees. Connectivity is the new ideology of sociality as a whole. The ubiquity of the new digital inflections of words such as network, screen, friend, viral, flash mob, crowdfund, and, and many more indicates the extent to which the new app technologies have begun to erode earlier frameworks of connectivity which were more closely tied to geography, social location, intimacy, memory, biography, and personal idiosyncrasy. This is even reflected in the recent cult status of actor network theory, which has made words such as script, format, etc., part of a new language of sociality, which eclipses older words for human sociality, such as status, anybody remember that word? Role, and the like. And as sociability goes, so does social science. Of course, this particular new mode of creative destruction also has technology at its core and has vast economic effects. That is this connectivity world. But its massive value creation, surplus extraction, and exploitation is based on sociality itself as its primary and exploitable raw material. Not coal, not steel, not fiber, not optics, not sociality. So I'm not here, I'm almost done, you'll be relieved to know, to shed tears about this process or to plead for a return to older forms of utility, identity, and connectivity before, uh, in, in the face of the new world of testers, users, and network effects. I want to open a different line of thinking, just open it. Recall that Schumpeter's brilliance was to recognize that technological innovation mediated by the financial entrepreneur was the driver of creative destruction in the social sphere in the 19th and 20th centuries. Today, what technology does is to generate surplus value by creatively destroying the earlier foundations of sociality through mobile apps based on new visions of sociality, which expand the world of linked users without requiring new technologies of production, distribution, and marketing in the realm of manufacturing technology. Put another way, the prior stage of industrial capitalism relied on making products rapidly obsolescent. Our current epoch relies on making prior socialities rapidly obsolescent. This is the cutting edge of a revolution in sociality for which we need both Schumpeter and his ghost to help us understand how we have, for the first time in history, found a way to profitably commoditize all human sociality, one app at a time. And if we recognize that we cannot go backward, the question is, how can we envisage a political future that is not wholly driven by machine-driven convenience? Done. Thank you for your patience. Thanks. Thank you.
very much. Fascinating. Could you uh, just introduce yourself? Yes, absolutely. Ansgar Baums, I work for HP, company uh, founded in 39, so contemporary of Schumpeter, basically. <laughs> Old economy by, by, by modern standards, I guess. Um, a couple of questions. First one is on culture of failure. Um, how relates the, the culture of failure in Silicon Valley to the culture of failure of Main Street in the US? Um, my impression is that the US can be quite an unforgiving place, right, at the same time. So if you look at the judicial system, one failure and you're basically um, stigmatized for the rest of your life. Uh, Jay-Z just wrote an article on this one in New York Times. So I'm always a little bit puzzled when we look at the US and say, oh, they have a culture of failure that we want to embrace. It could, it can be the opposite, right? So, yeah, exactly. So just curious if you have some thoughts about what, what Silicon Valley and how it conflicts with Main Street. Um, secondly, a, a comment maybe on your app economy analysis. I'm not entirely sure if the app is actually the main point of the economy in the Silicon Valley. If I look at the most highly valued companies there, these are actually business models who attempt to be a platform which hosts applications, right? So these platforms organize multi-sided markets. And in the end, I mean, the, the goal of these platforms is actually a very stable <laughs> uh, market system, which is uh, roughly, I mean, if you look at history, um, markets who have been um, challenged by platforms tend to become oligopolies. Platform markets are usually three to five big platforms spreading up the market and they're there you know, because of networks effects. The political consideration right now is not so much about um, um, uh, disruption, but it's the question, are these platforms actually too stable because they cannot be challenged anymore uh, of innovation because they are unassailable right now. So it, that's the, at least the, the debate that we have here in Europe. I, I'm not sharing a point of view, just want to give you that we, we have both aspects in the discussion. Yes, there's a lot of concern about disruption and too much change, but there's also an uh, alternative narrative about, hey, we're running into a world where Facebook, Google, GAFA basically is dominating the world and that's it, there is no innovation anymore. Um, and that leaves us in a place which is not, not really um, uh, desirable. And um, lastly, um, I just wondered if you're, you're um, highlighting uh, convenience, is there an implicit criticism that companies, the private sector, is no longer able to address real problems of the world? So there's this criticism, hey, you have an app for, I don't know, shipping dog food. Uh, meanwhile, uh, millions of people are still dying of diseases which could be prevented if the money in innovation would basically be challenged in on, or focusing on different problems. Um, is that, I'm, I'm just not sure if I understood you right, if that's an, an implicit uh, criticism of Silicon Valley's innovation system. Thank you. Uh, I think your question is extremely well taken and we just have to say that the US itself is like a huge and diverse cultural world in terms of its metrics of failure and its understandings of failure. And I'm dealing with one piece, which is this rarefied Silicon Valley world, but not judges, not this, not that, you know. So the US is like the world in small, meaning there's a lot of internal diversity on this uh, criterion, as there is in other studies, even not of failure, but of other things, religiosity or this or that. US, you'd have to really make a very complex case. So my case is really restricted. Earlier it was the Wall Street people, now it's a certain class of these, these uh, 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 funders um, and and startup people in the startup world who think begin to think like these funders. So it's that piece, not all of how the U.S. thinks about failure, punishment, stigma, about which you're absolutely right. On the second matter, I think more complex matter about platforms as opposed to apps. I am not in a position to make a decisive reply, but I sense that there is a kind of uh, internal affinity 
between the big social media platforms and the world uh, of apps. So if you take advertising in and through Facebook, it's evident every time I use my iPhone to do something to check a travel agent in Fiji, the next minute on Facebook, I'm seeing an ad, et cetera. So I'm not sure whether there's a wall there. Uh, in fact, not only there's not a wall, but that they're very close to each other in many ways. But it's an open question. What I do uh, think I'm not sure about is whether uh, these very large, these giants, have achieved a level of uh, stability and scale and domination such that they really are uh, both represent and seek a certain kind of equilibrium. I'm not entirely sure about that. Scale, of course, is consequential. Schumpeter always thought managerism, as he called it, would set in. When you have huge corporations, that the whole innovative drive would go, etc. And there's something to that, and that is why Facebook and so on are always, all these companies are buying little innovators, both to absorb them and to deflect them to make sure there's no competition. So there is some kind of internal cannibalism going on, but I think it is part of a kind of volatile and turbulent world that the key individuals in these five or six companies are well aware that they could fail and fail fast in the sense of lose markets and go down because they didn't think of something. So I think there's, a, there's still not a sense of uh, equilibrium and we are there, we monopolize, et cetera because they know any day now, any minute, there could be innovation which finds an independent source of funding, builds up its user base, and before you know it, I think uh, Mr. Zuckerberg and others are living in eternal panic of this possibility, either from their big competitors, Alibaba and so on, or from some little person who scales up very fast, because that's what they're advocating. You can scale up very fast. Well, if you can, that means your lunch can be eaten <laughs> tomorrow. So I, I have some difference of opinion with you on that, the last question you asked, uh, if you can just remind me. Real problems versus ah, convenience ah, problems, so to say. Yeah, uh, yeah uh, there's certainly, uh, I have a, a sensibility that this is uh, a kind of deep shift of priorities, which is not friendly uh, to the causes of equity, justice, and inclusion in the economy or in any, anything else. That it's driven by other things. That network effects have a certain inherent flatness about them. That is a fantasy of flatness. Uh, and so if you can get on board, you're in. And if you are not on board, you're not in. But that's not, as it were, our problem. So I, uh, on the other hand, I do see in the world of crowdfunding and philanthropic work, a lot of activism in other parts of the world using these kinds of connectivity to actually directly address problems of health, sanitation, credit, et cetera. So it's a, it's a mixed bag, and I don't know when the dust will settle enough for us to decide, but given the scale of money involved, just in Silicon Valley alone, I have a feeling at the moment it's a bit of an unequal battle. Thank you. Uh, my name is Jash. I'm a second year MPP student here, and I come from India. Uh, I kind of wanted to uh, pick up on the aspect of the app-based economy in terms of the, the, there's a recent narrative which talks about the app-based economy is driven around an attention economy, where the key f uh, it's driven around attention economy, uh, where the notion is that it's the the developers are incentivized as to how long they can hook or bait me onto the app. So I take a simple example of, of Netflix when I think of the entertainment app, and there is an example that the recent idea that 
when we end watching a film, instead of the end credits rolling, it kind of pops out and it gives you suggestion as to what's the next film you should watch. And that was a means of manipulating or nudging us towards staying hooked onto the app. So to that end, what I would like to ask is to, to what extent does technology hijack our minds and what we as individuals can do about it? How can policy respond to such a challenge where technology is essentially sort of being manipulated to how often would I reach on my pocket and you know, check my phone for the next notification? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, hi, thank you very much for your talk. Um, my name's Max, I'm also a student here. Um, and I kind of also wanna, I think, go a bit on what was said before here. Um, where do you see the role of governments in this world where everything's changing, where we basically have a new social contract to some extent as well? Hi, I'm Sid Rothstein. I'm a, a PhD student in political science at the University of Pennsylvania. And I had a question um, in two parts. The first is being struck by a strange sense that the presentation of uh, these dynamics you're describing seems to be uh, much more naturalistic than I would expect. Um, I was expecting you to talk a lot more about power, and that has come up a little bit in the Q&A and a little bit here and there in your, in your discussion. But the reason that I ask is because um, I think even, even for Schumpeter, um, it sure doesn't look like the dynamics of innovation are anything natural. And as long as we look at variability, you know, we can compare, for instance, the institutional frameworks that are in the United States to those that are in Germany, and we see very, very different dynamics of innovation, competition, and all these sorts of things. So there's nothing natural about them. But what is very important about this is that the institutions that were necessary for Silicon Valley to become Silicon Valley were the product of um, very concerted class action by finance capital and by entrepreneurs and by people who ran very large companies in the 70s and 80s. And so it, it looks as though the institutional framework that allows the certain kind of innovation dynamics in the United States that we now call Silicon Valley and now seem, seemingly take for natural and seemingly um, uh, dynamics that are evolutionary and that we would ascribe to innovation everywhere um, were the product of a very concerted political action. One that I think, um, going to the next question, seems very oddly in almost every single case to actively dismantle um, the power resources that labor has relied on for the last hundred years that were developed through industrial capitalism. And so I'm, I'm curious why we, instead of talking about these, the fancy dynamics of innovation, which I think Schumpeter might even call uh, the froth on the waves, why not talk about what's really pushing the wave dynamic, and that being a redistribution of power and the very concerted um, class politics that are happening here, as in the United States, a 30, 40 year project of redistributing wealth from working people to finance and to wealthy entrepreneurs has been taking place. So I'm curious why, why talk about innovation and failure from the perspective of company owners rather than talking about it from the perspective of people who are working? Yeah, well, uh, maybe I'll respond to this question first. Yeah. There's the recency effect. I can remember it's better and I have to ask my other colleagues to remind me. So I think you've uh, actually basically uh, misunderstood what I was seeking to do. So what I'm trying to describe is an ideology of naturalness, number one. I don't have a naturalist narrative. I took pains to say that failure is not a self-evident fact. 
people make that judgment, they, uh, other people are forced to accept it, all of which implies a vast political economy, which is not my subject today. But I certainly don't think these are just things that happen in nature. Uh, neither that innovation happens in nature, nor that failure happens in nature, nor that regulation happens in nature. So I think where you beginning with your sense of it is somehow, what can I say, so off? Because from what I'm trying to say that I'm a bit puzzled. But as to the US and what's happening in the US, for example, or Schumpeter's views, of course, everything is contextually driven. First of all, it's not natural. Second of all, it's variable. Third of all, it's variable historically. Third of all, fourth of all, it's variable culturally. What's happening because in India or China, there are different weightages and things. So variation is the key. So it's not naturalness of any type. And when I speak of evolutionary economics, it's not my economics. I'm saying this is espoused by people in a certain sector. That so, so it has nothing to do with my views. I'm, I'm, I'm incredibly skeptical both about economics and about evolution theory. So, so the combination is bad news for me. But I just say that is how these people are thinking. So I think there's some basic misunderstanding. As to the uh, remainder of your question, which is, I have to say, a, a formal question that I have heard in the past, which is, all this is fine, but what about power? Well, what about power? One could say a lot about it. So I've written a book about finance recently, which is about the derivative economy. It's completely exploitative nature, the ways in which it can be redirected, et cetera, et cetera. So I have a lot to say on that, just not my subject today. So I think, what can I say? <laughs> I, I didn't give you satisfaction, but it's not because I'm not interested. Uh, for example, in the growth of the, the right worldwide, on which I've just written a, a long article for a book published by Zurkamp uh, called The Great Regression. So I, I have a lot to say, which is entirely in line with your, with your interest, but today's talk, alas, was at a different subject, and it was from a perspective which is not the one you think I have, which is that somehow I'm just you know, reporting uh, on the slumber that's going on and what's happening in nature on the contrary. So, what can I say? I think we have either disagreement uh, in understandings, which is what I think it is, or it's a, a deeper one, which we'll have to take up more fully uh, elsewhere. So let me then move this way to your question, which was about attention. Attention economy, wh where can we go with it? And it relates to regulation. So I do think there was a time uh, before this particular digitalized app world when Already eyeball counting had become very important. You know, this phrase was used in advertising. We want the eyeball. Now we want not only the eyeball, we want the attention behind it, and we want to direct that attention. As a Netflix user, I have strong feelings about this, uh, a big Netflix user, as well as the other little complaint I have, which is then when you get these categories, because you saw X, you might like Y, but then all the 25 categories have the same movies. I keep saying, can you show me something else in these 15 films under 20 rubrics, you know? All having to do with, so it's actually not a very good way that they're doing whatever they're doing, but you're perfectly right that there's a terrific effort to channel very fast and in real time consumer choice. So that, and that's the flip side of the convenience factor. Convenience factor means, yeah, we'll make it very convenient for you. And we'll make it convenient for you by smoothing out the path, A to B to C to D, boom, 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 boom. So, it's a very troubling problem because it uh, speeds things up. It makes it impossible to browse, so to speak, truly in the way that we used to browse as flaneurs, look at stores, look at books in a library, actually go to carols. All this is done. 
and I think it's a serious issue. I don't think it's a neutral issue. I don't think it's natural. I don't think it uh, 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 should go without contest. The question is, what's the contest? We can't turn, put the horse back in the barn and say, gee, we wish the digital revolution not happened. Oops, internet, you know, a little, little kind of a problem. Well, what to do? It's here. Same with finance. There's no putting that horse back in the barn. It's more than 50 or 60% of the world's economy is somehow financial in nature. We can't change that. What do we do about it is crucial. Is how can we engage it? Uh, and that goes to regulation. And I do think states have a significant role to play. We know that both in the finance industries as well as in the Silicon Valley uh, digital industries, there's a huge amount spent on lobbying. I mean, huge. Microsoft, Facebook, everybody's there. Peter Thiel is now sitting next door to Trump every minute. He's not doing it because he loves Trump. There's something in it for him, which in the long run. So I think states and their responses are crucially important, and they need to be simply, uh, A, better informed about the costs of what is going on, and B, massively uh, uh, debated when they're moving in the direction of sheer facilitation. That is to say, the pure form of the neoliberal state which is I'm here to both help you and be out of your way <laughs> at the same time. That's a neoliberal state. Well, that has to uh, be contested in uh, every way possible. The only challenge for me is that in another line of my work, I've long had some worries about the, the nation state as our premier architectural form for sovereignty in the modern world since Westphalia. And so while I would say the state can do this, the state can do that, I do have some questions about the modern nation state and the limitations to its capacities in a world of extremely complicated and fluid sovereignties of many kinds, but that's a different problem. Putting that in hold for a minute, I would say the state has a lot to do, and that is certainly part of my uh, response to your question, which I think was focused on the, on the state's role, which I did not speak about. And in the US, uh, I would say, uh, unlike Europe, it's very clear that the state has uh, done nothing but smooth the path for all these enterprises, both on the Silicon Valley side and on the financial side. I mean, the investment is massive in that lobbying, but it's very successful. Uh, so in, a, in other words, the state simply disappears, more or less. Uh, whereas in Europe, it's very present, even in relation to Google and so on. You know, the EU commissioners are constantly on Google's case. Well, good, you know, and that, that's a reminder that, you know, everybody's not going to lie down and just say this is all wonderful and beautiful, so I'm with you. Hello, I'm Richard, I'm a physicist, and I'm also alumnus of Bavarian Hans Adel Foundation. And this is already my question. Uh, what do you think will be the role of the political foundations in a digitized world? But we have a specific situation in Germany. I'm not quite sure whether you're aware of this. Yeah, so, yeah, so just repeat. Political foundations. Yes. Like Stiftungs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Hans Eidel Stiftung, Böll Stiftung, Friedrich Ebert Stiftung. You, in, in Germany, everybody has a foundation. And what will be the role of these foundations? Yes, I'm very envious of this. World? Yeah. So there are, there's the government, uh, uh, this is outside the government, and it's also not, you're not talking of the corporate Stiftungs. You're not talking of uh, Deutsche Bank Stiftung, and uh, you're talking of political Stiftungs. It's an interesting uh, category about which I may not know enough. Uh, but I will say this. It's my general impression in Germany, based on my recent time, a year plus now, and conversations with very intelligent people in this country, that uh, the role of philanthropy in this country is 
noticeably bigger to me as an academic than in anywhere else in Europe. In France, you have to go hunting. So where is a stiftung? In Germany, in every block next to the church in the bar, there is a stiftung. You're absolutely right. So for an academic, this is a side observation, there is the money from the, the state, the regional state. There's the money from the federal government. There's the money from all the variety of stiftungs. Then there's the money from ERC. I mean, from any other country's point of view, this is a lot of resources. I'm not sure what the political implications will be, but there seems to be relatively a very high degree of available funding, both public and private, for things like research and so on. But where it's going in terms of academic research or research, political research, or corporate research or technological, this I don't have a good measure of, but the absolute amount seems to be large. I'll leave it like that. Thanks so much for the insightful talk today. Um, I am Majo, I'm a design thinker and currently studying MPP here at Herty. And therefore, I wonder how might we combine uh, the user-centered design with the public policy process? Is there a way? Hi, uh, uh, my name is Marika. I'm a PhD student at Humboldt University, and I'm at Humboldt, uh, and I'm interested in uh, critical legal studies. I come from a law background uh, and internet governance. So thank you, first of all, for that wonderful, wonderful presentation told with a lot of patience. And uh, I was especially fascinated uh, with how you connected the idea of evolutionary economics with uh, uh, sociality and, uh, and the change of its sociality. But I was also uh, um, really uh, intrigued by uh, when you said this is the first time in the history of capitalism that uh, forms of sociality are changing. Uh, and I was kind of curious, like, uh, you know, in making uh, how, how you made the difference between, like, earlier forms and how they were exploited. Uh, because if you look at, say, the idea of commodity fetishism also, uh, because it, it was also a form of... Uh, you know, uh, defining relationships with goods and products and, uh, and exploitation of those relationships uh, in forms of labor. I think you're right in a general way that uh, the history, at least of capitalism, maybe even of prior economic forms, you take agrarian systems and all, they all have something to do with dominating and extracting value from people. So wherever there's inequality, there's some manipulation of social relations. What I'm trying to point to is the direct treatment of sociality as the primary commodity from which value is to be extracted. That is not there in volume one, two, or three of Marx. There is commodity, there is commodity production, and a lot of Marx's interest was how does that get organized? And where is the value produced? What is relative and what is absolute surplus value? How is it actually created, both relative and absolute? But it was all in the context of factory industrial production, commodities, manufacture, and so on. There was always a, a physical material resource which had all sorts of accompaniments. Of course, labor is a completely a social thing. What are people doing in a factory? It's a social thing. But going directly after our sociality, as if it is coal, steel, iron, or cotton, this is new. So that, I'll leave it like that. that, that, that so, but it's not that, it's, that capitalism has never exploited social relations. That would be a ridiculous thing to say, uh, uh, but, but rather this focus in which exploiting sociality doesn't require direct reference to the commodity world at all, 
but simply goes after relations as, as a thing to exploit. This to me is, is a trend at least. It may not be an established thing, which is somehow new. But here I, there's always a pitfall when you say something is new, uh, which I recognize that you know, everything has a history, everything has some precedence, and yet we, uh, we have to identify you know, some change, but then it has to be discussed and debated as you are rightly doing. But that's my general view of what's new at this moment, which is not a general thing, but something specific, I think. Just remind me once again. Um, I wonder how can we combine the user-centered de design and with public, public policy process. process, yeah. Well, it's a wonderful question. It's not uh, something on which I have uh, uh, given a lot of thought, but I've been exposed to lots of people who are giving it thought. So there are two angles, and I, and I personally am very interested in design uh, though I'm not trained in it, but I got exposed to it in one way or the other when I was in the new school. It had the Parsons School of Design, which is a giant uh, in the design business. But um, what I'm thinking is that there are people who actually use the word design for things like constitutions. How do you design a constitution? In other words, they see it as an artifact, something which has to be produced in a certain way, which has to be tested in a certain way. In other words, they actually see what we think of as political arrangements and so on as objects of design activity. So that's one way. The other way is to actually ask how design and design thinking can intervene in public policy even when it has no design dimension. So let's say in health or something. And there I think it's a, it's a different question because it is a question uh, that asks, that requires an answer to what is design. For me, design is something which brings together marketing art, some kind of aesthetic principle, and engineering. So you have to make it better, you have to sell a lot of it, and it has to be attractive. That is what designers are trained to do, all three at once. So if you just do the beauty thing, you go into art. If you just do engineering, you become an engineer. If you just do marketing, you're a marketeer. But in design, all are involved. So I think the question becomes for public policy, how to relate it to design, would be how can uh, products be thought about utilities of different kinds, which need not be only apps and not only held in our hand, but of any kind, which would allow, for example, greater accountability, uh, greater transparency, or more active mobilization. For example, I am very interested in the idea of what kind of financial designs could there be that contest the capacity of only big banks to take risk on our behalf. Why can't all the people in this room go into the global risk markets? and not have to put all our money into a pension fund, which is then sucked up by Deutsche Bank, and then it's a, we never see it again. So that's a design problem for me. So I think there are a number of levels at which design thinking could fruitfully be in a dialogue with policy thinking. But I've not really written about it or thought about it that much. In, in the entire talk, which was an intellectual firework, no, there were no women. It was all men you cited, and the people at the head of these institutions are, are men. Is there a new gender dimension there, or is it actually a continuation of what we've seen? That's a very important point. Because uh, I, I haven't thought about it, but it occurred to me when I... No, it's a very important point. I have a sense that if you did a rough map of this world, that the movers and shakers are overwhelmingly men, and men of a certain type, and I want to say something about that. But as you move down the pyramid to users, obviously women are also hugely involved in any number of, of the uses that this economy is involved. So as you move to the base of the pyramid, I think gender becomes 
a much more complex and much more demographically significant. You move to the top, it is significant in a different way because of the absence of women at the top and because of a particular, I think, now that you raise it, I'm tempted to speculate a bit and say, this kind of idea of heroic entrepreneurship being people who are shaping the very course of human evolution, this is hyper-masculinist, you know, and hyper, how to put it, megalomaniac, frankly. And it is not the stuff you associate with even women in Silicon Valley. Uh, the few that rise to these levels are not talking... Meg Whitman, for example. Meg Whitman, for example. And the lower down you go, slightly below that, there are more and more. But when you get to these characters, who are really investing the very largest amounts of money, seem to have the biggest stakes and can make or break whole industries you know, like this by a whim, they tend not only to be men, but men with this vision of themselves as really having their hands on the levers of history by having an instinct for evolution, something like that. So it's a scary sort of idea. It's very, you know, so your question is entirely uh, to the point, but I didn't feel I knew enough about the overall context directly, although there is some more and more interesting work emerging now uh, about gender in Silicon Valley at all levels, from the very top to the very bottom, but I'm sort of a consumer of that literature and that to a preliminary consumer. Well, I think we all have to thank Arjun for...